Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I am thrilled to have back with me today the one and only Dr. Lee Goodell. Dr. Goodell, as listeners will remember, I'm sure, is a cardiac anesthesiologist and an intensivist and the program director for our critical care fellowship here at Johns Hopkins and most importantly, a stellar all-around guy. It's a pleasure to have him back on the show. We're going to talk about fluid responsiveness, one of the most requested topics from the audience. And Lee, I'm so happy that you were able to do this. Welcome back to the show. Jed, it's great to be back and uh, to be with all of your listeners. Uh, Always fun to talk and join ACRAC. Awesome. So let's jump right in. We're going to talk about fluid responsiveness. So let me ask you off the top, what do we mean? What, when we say, is a patient fluid responsive, what does that mean? How would you define it? So I'm going to pause right there and set, set some groundwork and maybe some ground rules. Please do. Um, so all of you excited about fluid responsiveness are ultimately honed in on the right practice, and that is thoughtful hemodynamic management of your patients undergoing anesthesia in critical care. Fluid responsiveness is a huge part of that and, and continuing to evaluate your patient uh, for fluid responsiveness. But the ground rules, I think, are these. So first of all, we're going to otherwise clarify evaluations uh, uh, of fluid responsiveness and some of the caveats, the pitfalls. But before we even go there for the, for the entire conversation, Hemodynamic management at its base and core is determined by cardiac output, by vascular tone, by volume status. And when we start to talk about fluid responsiveness, uh, even before I give you that definition, um, we're going to start by talking about patients with, uh, with normal heart function, um, and and I, I think it's really important to start there because uh, you could potentially really harm someone if if uh, if you try to apply a blanket assessment of fluid responsiveness to patients of uh, of all types of cardiac function. So that's that's the first place I wanted to start with. So right. we're going to that makes see- sense. And, and Lee, I always appreciate you know how you you are very careful with. Um, kind of what you lay out there. Uh, I remember when we talked about um, POCUS and, you know, uh, I asked you, I think about uh, what, uh, if a left heart looks like it's collapsing on echo, does that tell you that the patient can use some fluid? And I remember you saying, whoa, 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 we definitely can't. (laughs) Like we got to talk about all the other things that can be. So I I appreciate you being very careful. And I, I know the audience does too. All right. So we, we are 
want to be very careful to say we're going to give some general rules during the course of this discussion for kind of evaluating or some general guidelines, practices for evaluating fluid responsiveness. But what you're emphasizing uh, is that these are not, can't be blanket applied in a blanket fashion to all patients. We're talking about patients with normal heart function and some other uh, parameters as well. Yeah. And I think as the listeners learn more about these topics, you can learn how they might be applicable to these other situations. Um, I think afterload or vascular tone is also a really important thing that, um, that even the, the articles we're going to provide you to further read on this subject don't start with. So um, fluid responsiveness is, uh, is going to fluctuate based on vascular tone as well. So, um, so I think that's a second sort of ground rule to think about. You want your vascular tone to, uh, to ideally be normal, but as we know from anesthesia, that's, that's often not the case because our anesthetics directly impact that. So you might even have lower vascular tone, but when you're evaluating for fluid responsiveness from point A to point B, you want to try to assess the fact that vascular tone is consistent between those two time points. All right. So yep. hopefully, hopefully I, I haven't confused you with starting, but set some ground rules. Now, fluid responsiveness. So Essentially, fluid, the concept of fluid responsiveness is that the patient requires augmentation of their cardiac output to maintain or improve a, their perfusion state. And then the second aspect of that is that additional volume resuscitation is, is going to achieve that. So they will respond by additional fluid. So when we say respond, you, we mean increase cardiac output to increase perfusion. That's correct. Okay. And I think that's really key, right? Because a lot of people are under the impression that an increase in blood pressure with fluid administration indicates fluid responsiveness. And that is not what you just said. That is not the definition that we're going to use, right? So this is, uh, this is one of my favorite things um, to, to think overall about anesthesia practice, again, is that we are so focused on the numbers of the blood pressure um, uh, but, but those, those reflect cardiac output for sure, but they also reflect those other things that I mentioned before and afterload and tone. So, um, so exactly. We, we aim to increase the cardiac output, which is not necessarily the numbers, although that's the numbers being what we often use as one of the markers of increased cardiac output, but we're going to, uh, we're going to augment cardiac output with additional fluid. And then that is a responder. That is someone who, who, who's a fluid responder. Great. So, it, and when we do this, we're trying to figure out, is somebody going to have that response, that increased cardiac output, increased perfusion with fluid, as opposed to giving fluid with in someone who may not have that response we're looking for. And so that differs, right? Then the kind of traditional, I mean, I'm, I think you probably, and I both were, taught at a time when we were told, look, you count, use the four, two, one rule to calculate a fluid deficit, give that back over the first hour of the case and then run maintenance fluid and give, you know, there was no, when I was initially taught kind of fluid management for the OR, I was not taught anything about using dynamic variables. It was just calculate the fluid that they, that they don't have and put it in. And this is very different, right? This is, this is trying to figure out, will they respond to fluid? Correct. All right. So Lee, why do we care? And, and what I mean is, 
what are the downsides of giving too much fluid? Why don't we just give a bunch of fluid and, you know, say, well, hey, if some is good, more is better. So this is, retur- this is referred to as really a liberal uh, fluid management strategy uh, and has been uh, related to uh, increased complications and worse patient outcome. We could spend a lot of uh, time going through those studies in, there, in detail, um, but, uh, but this does get back to a little bit of the, the previous approach that we were taught during residency of trying to use that 421 rule and, uh, and, and, and significantly resuscitate folks. I guess what, what, what will further frustrate the listeners is that, um, in response to some of those studies, uh, more restrictive strategies were used to uh, achieve really zero fluid balance over the course of, uh, of, of different abdominal surgery cases. And, um, and there've also been problems there leading to acute kidney injury and other, other complication rates with, with excess fluid. Uh, some of those studies showed uh, complications with bowel anastomoses, fluid overload, things that would logically make sense. Um, so uh, ideally what's prescribed now sort of in our national guidelines uh, is a uh, is sort of a medium path. Uh, and, and a lot of people prescribe fluid responsiveness as a way to try to find that middle path. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Lee. I think that's great. And, and you know, that's, <laughs> I laugh because that's kind of what we want, right? Is it not too little, not too much. We want it just right. And that is essentially what the data suggests is that too little is not great. Too much is definitely not great. And what you want is to have it just right, which is, as you say, the whole point of trying to have some, uh, some techniques, some tools we can use to figure out whether the patient would benefit from some fluid. And I will say that if listeners haven't li- uh, checked them out already, they can check out uh, the couple of ERAS podcasts that we've done. One was with Chris Wu, one was with Mike Grant. Um, and those uh, cover some of the reasons why ERAS pathways try to limit fluid to, to an extent. All right. So let's talk about how we actually do this now. Uh, let's, let, we're going to talk mostly about the operating room. Um, and, and we may you know, do a whole other episode uh, specific to the ICU. But in the operating room, Lee, uh, how do we figure out if someone is fluid responsive? So uh, we have a lot of um, we have a lot of control in the operating room, and uh, I think that's one reason why Jed and I aim to differentiate between the two environments. Not that we don't have control all the time in the ICU, but it's obviously just very different when uh, you have general anesthesia, you have mechanical ventilation, and usually paralysis in in most situations. So there, uh, there are multiple uh, ways that we we assess fluid responsiveness. One is uh, is sort of an age old technique. You give fluid and you see what happens. Um, so essentially, uh, you can give fluid bolusing and see if you have a response. That response we're usually going to see in the operating room is increase in the numbers on the blood pressure. But again, I. I take the opportunity for for us to all think harder that we believe that's mediated by an increase in cardiac output. Um, And if the vascular tone is low, we might not see that. Um, uh, So is that someone who's not responding? Uh, If their blood pressure doesn't go up, it's possible. 
Um, it might mean then that you need to address their vascular tone. Um, um, uh, but, uh, but it might be that volume status and, and, vo- and fluid resuscitation is not the, uh, not the answer um, uh, in, in, that, in that circumstance. So, uh, and we'd worry then that that was excess fluid that, n- that didn't need to be given. So that's, that's, that's one of the first, uh, first ways to assess fluid responsiveness. But I think the practice now is shifting to can we use some of these other dynamic indices prior to going straight to fluid and maybe try to predict what's going to happen. And that's the majority of, bo- majority of the body of literature that I think we otherwise wanted to um, summarize and discuss with you today. Yeah, thanks, Lee. And, you know, as you could imagine, if you go with the route of giving a fluid bolus and assessing response, imagine a 12-hour case in the operating room where you're doing that every 15, 20 minutes to try to figure out if they're fluid responsive. You're going to give a lot of volume just in those boluses, uh, just in your tests over the course of that case. So, you know, there are downsides to that. So, as you say, let's talk about kind of the dynamic variables uh, that we can look at and how those can help us. So what are what are the things we look at to try to get an idea without giving fluid as to whether a patient would benefit from getting fluid? So I think we're talking mostly about big cases and oftentimes when you're going to have an arterial line. Um, so let's spend time talking really about that and, and what utility we can gain uh, uh, from that arterial line and really the, the waveform analysis in, in rudimentary terms. Um, so... First, the ground rules for this analysis, and this is why I mentioned that the OR really provides us a, uh, a really useful environment. So in the setting, when you're mechanically ventilated, paralyzed, no arrhythmia, no right heart failure, those conditions really make the arterial line waveform um, re- remarkably useful um, in the following ways. So uh, the most uh, evidence-based and validated number is pulse pressure variation between, between breathing. And that's essentially the difference in amplitude of the pulse pressure between breaths. And essentially, uh, greater than 12% variation is the most predictive measure of the following arterial line measures and analyses that we'll discuss. It is it is the most predictive of fluid responsiveness. And is there a certain cutoff, Lee? Uh, do we, when we're saying we want to look at pulse pressure variation, how much variation is predictive of fluid responsiveness? So greater than twelve percent is is uh, it has been most predictive. If is between um, nine and sort of twelve percent, um, then it can be a gray zone. Uh, so to speak. So um, I think then you also have to consider the clinical picture and what's going on and not use these numbers in isolation. Sure. Okay. But that's helpful to have a kind of guideline, 12%. Obviously, the higher the percentage, the more uh, sure you can be, though never, none of this is, is going to give you 100% certainty, as you say. Okay. So pulse pressure variation, most well-validated, most predictive. Um and as you, as you said, that's the change in pulse pressure, which is, of course, systolic minus diastolic from, uh, with respiratory variation. Um, okay, so that's one thing folks can look at. Um, uh, 
what else? So uh, the next reference is stroke volume variation. And if you uh, are able to take the area under the curve of the arterial waveform, that is going to correlate to stroke volume. Um, so the area itself under the, uh, if, if you were able to calculate in real time, which uh, I would love to see you do, is going to correlate, as I said, to stroke volume. So if you see variation in that around 10%, then that's also uh, seen to be predictive. But, um, you know, with both of these two, two numbers, they, uh, they're they're both uh, helpful. So pulse pressure variation being the most predictive, but they're both pretty laborious to calculate. Um, and, uh, you know, I have no connection to any industry, um, uh, any industry provider that, that, uh, provide these technologies, but, but these two almost do require the investment of another device that requires upkeep, et cetera, in the operating room. Um, maybe my fav- one of my favorites is systolic pressure variation, and the studies demonstrate that its reliability and prediction is is um, is about the same as stroke volume variation, not quite as good as pulse pressure variation, um, but uh, but also really useful. And I think in in any OR where you have an arterial waveform, you can decrease the sweep on the uh, on the tracing. And uh, and make a pretty good guess if if the uh, if the difference is is greater than eight to ten millimeters of mercury with breathing, um, suggestive of hypovolemia. So we teach our residents to to use this uh, a decent amount, not as um, you know an absolute indication for fluid, but certainly as part of part of your assessment in the operating room. And Lee, uh, so those are three great variables to use. You mentioned a bunch of necessary precursors to being able to rely on these, sinus rhythm, no right heart failure, uh, mechanical ventilation, ideally neuromuscular blockade. What about tidal volume? Um, is it true that we, we can't, this, these are not as accurate with low tidal volume and ideally we would have a, uh, a higher tidal volume? That is a great point. Um, and, uh, and a lot of the, the studies that have been done with, with these, these numbers demonstrate that a tidal volume of around eight cc's per kilo, uh, is probably necessary, uh, to, to actually even use these indices with the numbers that I quoted, um, which, uh, hopefully makes everybody a little uneasy that that doesn't really connect with lung protective ventilation, um, both in the ICU that's been translated uh, into some pretty good outcomes data in the operating room. So it might be something that you considered temporarily doing um, as sort of a test, um, which, uh, which is a little bit of where the science is now uh, of, uh, uh, that we'll talk maybe a little bit more about of, of with echo uh, and, and volume assessment in the ICU. Great. So, you know, what I do, and, and I, uh, I know a lot of folks do, is I keep folks, if I can, at 60 cc's per kilo of predicted body weight um, for the case in the operating room. But then if I want to look at these variables, I'll put them up to 8 cc's for a minute or two to, to get a feel for the systolic pressure variation, and then I will go back to 6. And I, I think that it's probably reasonably safe 
to do that, that a minute or two uh, at a slightly higher tidal volume is probably not going to cause a lot of harm. I don't know if you do that similarly or if you have a different approach. I think if, if I, if I really need, uh, need, need that additional information, I, I certainly will. Um, and, um, what I was alluding to in the ICU is that now there are techniques, uh, to do similar things with that using, um, using echocardiographic changes as well while doing different types of changes to the, to the inspiratory system. And I think, Chad, I think this might be a good opportunity actually for me to take a shot for everyone to really describe the physiologic concepts that are driving these pieces of data that we're trying to apply clinically. Yeah, please do. I think that would be really helpful. You know, I think this for me as a resident and even as a fellow, um, it was hard to wrap my mind around this. And I, um, I, uh, hopefully I can provide you at least a window into my understanding. And there's a paper uh, that we've attached to this podcast that also can help you dive into the physiology. So clearly we're seeing differential um, blood pressures, different cardiac output that's happening on a breath-to-breath or even inspiratory-to-expiratory cycle um, change. Um, and, uh, and, and let's just break that down um, and follow blood flow. This, to me, is the easiest way uh, to remember it. Um, so with positive pressure ventilation um, and, and everything, everything changes, actually, if we start talking spontaneous ventilation, but we're talking only about positive pressure ventilation. So with, with that mechanically delivered breath, you're going to increase your, uh, your thoracic pressure and decrease preload to the right ventricle. Um, so with, in that instant, the right ventricle is going to have less blood. But what's so, what was so confusing to me um, until I explain here in a second um, how to understand this is that in that very minute too, when you have increased intrathoracic pressure, you actually have an instantaneous increase in left ventricular preload. So, um, so in, that, in that first beat, you have increased LV preload. You also have increased intrathoracic pressure that helps LV systolic function. So, and this seems very confusing. Hopefully I haven't lost anybody so far. Believe me, I was, this, this took me a while to wrap my head around. But in that moment, you actually are going to have uh, increased LV ejection because essentially the decrease in right ventricular preload hasn't yet affected left ventricular output. Okay. Um, so, the, so as inspiration continues, preload further drops into the RV. So the RV ejects less, and because of ventricular interdependence, the left heart can't eject what the right heart doesn't bring it. Then you start to have decreases in left ventricular pre, preload at that point because of the, the increases in intrathoracic pressure. So by saying someone is hypovolemic, if someone is hypovolemic, it will exaggerate that ultimate decrease of left ventricular ejection during inspiration. And so what we are seeing manifested on the arterial waveform, 
or uh, in these three different measurements is essentially changes in cardiac output over the course of those couple breaths. Yep. I think that's super well said, Lee, and really a nice way for people to understand it because I agree with you. I think a lot of people know the fact that respiratory variation in in an arterial line waveform can indicate volume responsiveness, but they don't know why, and that is why. So thank you for taking us through that. Um, all right, so I, I want to touch on one other thing. You mentioned that um, you know for these cases that we're talking, generally these big cases that we're we're going to be really thinking about fluid intensively, uh, we we are likely to have an arterial line. Now, if we don't, there is something called the the plethysmographic variability index. Um, and that is something you can get from a pulse oximeter. Tell me a little about that. Uh, is that helpful? Uh, what do we do with that? Yeah, so I think that um, this, is, uh, uh, this, is, this can be really useful in cases where you don't have that arterial line and, um, and is now also being applied in some of those um, industry technologies uh, to assess for cardiac output. And, um, you know, so essentially... Uh, it, it's it's also so a variability of about fourteen percent is is a, a, a predictor of fluid responsiveness. Um, and, but I'd say one caveat is it is further affected um, by other changes in vasomotor tone um, with some of those caveats that I mentioned before, and that makes sense uh, as as you might expect as we're uh, we're assessing uh, at the level of a digit where you typically have a, a pulse ox. Um, right. So um, I, I think, you know, this probably less reliable than, than the others, um, but, uh, but certainly, um, you know, could still give you uh, useful information. I think particularly if you have wide variability in the, in, in the index. Great. Now, what about if you could get a, transthoracic echo probe on a patient's chest. And I'm imagining maybe like pelvic surgery. If you know, if you needed to, you probably could uh, get under the drapes and put a probe on the chest. What, you know, maybe, and again, we'll talk, I think if we do another, um, and we'll try to do this, do another episode talking about kind of what we might do in the ICU, which will be more echo focused. But if you were going to do this, you know, just give us a brief, like what would you look for? and, And how helpful is that if you could get a probe on the chest? So very useful. I think the first thing it gives you insight on or where I started this discussion, that if, you're, if, if your blood pressure appears lower than it should, you first can identify ventricular function. Um, you can I- identify the presence of an effusion. Um, uh, but then uh, looking at volume in particular, um, you know, I think... It, uh, it it would be useful to look at the um, inferior vena cava. Uh, that's often pretty difficult in abdominal surgery, as you mentioned. Um, I think that um, looking at left ventricular and diastolic area um, and uh, and end systolic area, the difference uh, can can guide you. Uh, but um, I do offer some caveats to that. And I think, um, I, I think that it certainly needs 
additional training before you're using that as a predictor of volume responsive of fluid responsiveness in particular because um, uh, the, the some of the data from the operating room suggests that can mislead people great all right. And this is rare, right? We're very rarely going to be putting a probe on a patient in the operating room, especially, as you say, during a, an abdominal case and obviously impossible during a thoracic case. So um, most of these cases that we're going to be really kind of very tightly thinking about volume status over a long, you know, mul- multiple hours, we're going to have an arterial line. Um, and if you don't, the, um, the pulse ox can give you some information as we discussed. I, interestingly, one of the articles we're going to um, post in the show notes is from uh, anesthesiology and talks about, it's a nice overview of this topic. And it mentioned a couple of newer variables that I just thought were interesting. One is an end expiratory occlusion test, and one is a tidal volume challenge. And the, the tidal volume challenge is not that, um, you know, kind of fancy. It's really just saying going up from um, six to eight mLs per kilo uh, for a minute and seeing if you see a change in these variables, which is kind of what we already talked about. The end expiratory occlusion test I thought was interesting. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this, Lee, but I have not. I hadn't heard of it. But the idea here, I guess, is to interrupt the vent, so stop the vent for up to 15 to 30 seconds at the end of expiration and then assess changes in cardiac output with the variables we talked about um, to see what, what happens. And the idea here being that normally when that new breath would happen, you'd see all the changes that you mentioned. You'd see that initial increase and then decrease in left ventricular output. But if that doesn't happen, then you kind of almost simulate an increase in left ventricular filling because you skip the decrease. So it's almost like a double negative and you you don't decrease. So you increase. And then you can see if you, um, it's almost like giving a bolus, right. Uh, and see what the response is. Um, is that, uh, those are, those have been, you know, I think very recently described. So there's probably not a lot out about it yet, but I thought those were interesting. Any thoughts on those? Uh, I, I, there has been, um, some similar work done, uh, in the ICU using, using some of the similar methodology and, um, and, and, you know, we, what we'll talk about hopefully in the ICU is, is using, um, LVOT, um, basically blood flow and injection and, and assessing, you know, beat to beat differences between those. And so I think some of that practice, uh, originated from that in the ICU. Um, and I, I think it, I think it definitely, uh, could be, could be useful. Um, and, um, I, I think the other important thing that probably folks are thinking about is how do we make it and keep it safe? Um, and I think that, uh, I, I think it's exciting for us to have these other techniques and to be really thoughtful. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how uh, our, our, you know, our, our, our specialty really utilizes them to, to be more thoughtful. Um, but I, I would, I would bring that safety caveat as well. Not even the fact that we're manipulating ventilation pressures and maybe even um taking someone off the vent, which has issues. Um, but also the fact that, uh, you know, the art of anesthesia is multitasking and making sure that we're not anchoring on, on fluid responsiveness alone while we're doing that. I think that's possible, but I, I would just, as people are, are excited to learn about these different techniques, um, I hope you maintain, uh, maintain attention elsewhere as well. 
Absolutely. All right. So Lee, let me ask you, is there ever a time when you would give fluid to a patient in the operating room if they're not meeting criteria for being fluid responsive? So let's say you've got a patient and you know you check their systolic pressure variation and it's 5%. And uh, you, you know, is there a time when you would say, well, yeah, okay, but I'm going to give fluid anyway? So I think it's a really useful question. And, um, and, and it gets back to the fact that you can't make these decisions in a vacuum. I think you have to take all of the clinical data you have in front of you. I I would also really like to know, um, you know, what my sense of a patient's afterload is, um, and you know, what I've given them since then. Um, I, I, I think that uh, we have to be doubtful, uh, uh, you know, and and um, if we think a patient's bleeding um, and might have an acute increase in afterload as a response to that, a physiologic afterload, um, these numbers are not going to behave as we're teaching you today. And uh, so uh, I would challenge you to just do a full hemodynamic assessment. And, um, you know, one of the other things that we didn't talk about is that, you know, looking at other indices of adequate cardiac output. Um, and, uh, and and that that can include a lot of other things, uh, you know, just the pulse ox waveform. Um, you know, if your pulse ox is, is not giving you a reliable waveform, it, it very well might, might be that the fingers aren't getting blood flow. You might have a normal-ish number uh, for for your systolic, diastolic, and mean, um, but uh, but that the the body is reacting to something that you're not sure of. So, I, I would pump the brakes and think broadly, um, but uh, very much consider if I felt then after doing all that uh, that maybe fluid is indicated even with um, normal non-responder predictive numbers. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Lee. I think that these are helpful, but as you say, these are not existing in isolation. You need to take this as a, these indicators as one piece of a much broader puzzle and think it through. Uh, all right. So let me ask you, if a patient isn't fluid responsive, either they're not meeting the criteria we've discussed or you actually try and just, you don't get the result you want with fluid, does that mean they're pressor responsive? Maybe. Is there any way to figure that out? Or do we just have to try some afterload with norepinephrine or something like it and, uh, and see if that helps? And I think it's reasonable to try phenylephrine in that, in that setting. Um, and, um, uh, you know, uh, address really how much anesthesia patients receiving at that point. Sometimes you might be deeper than you think with anesthesia. And then, um, I think we really also need to uh, consider cardiomyopathy, whether acute, an acute change there um, or a, a chronically undiagnosed situation. And um, so you, you said earlier it's unlikely for us to put a transthoracic probe uh, on in the middle of the operating room. And so a little bit of one of my missions uh, as a uh, in, in my role in education and research to hopefully um, change that and make this technology uh, really available to people dealing with these issues in the operating room um, and to deal with them within our scope of practice. Awesome. That was actually my last question for you was what the future holds. So it sounds like there's some uh, exciting stuff you're involved with on the horizon. Um, anything else you think of that, the, that you know, in 20 years, how are we going to be assessing volume responsiveness in the OR. Yeah, I, I would actually go straight there and, and just say a little bit more that I, 
Um, I really hope to be part of uh, part of our general anesthesiology specialty that helps us to really define what an appropriate scope of practice is for uh, for cardiac POCUS. Um, that our scope is within our skill set, but really complements uh, the fact that we are masters of the hemodynamics, uh, and 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 uh, you know we are the ones that deal with these issues every day in a level of granularity that no one else does. And that's one reason we love it. Absolutely. Well, I think it's going to be exciting to see Lee and uh, certainly appreciate you being involved in trying to make uh, echo assessment and uh, the accessibility of this stuff in the operating room to general anesthesiologists more, uh, more available in the future. Uh, all right. Well, this has been a, a really informative discussion. Let's turn to the portion of our podcast where we talk about random recommendations for the audience. It's still the time of COVID. Folks are still uh, not doing the same kind of traveling and outdoor, or I should say kind of activities and certainly indoors that they may typically be doing. And with the weather getting colder, maybe less outdoor stuff too. So I'm sure people would appreciate any recommendations you have of what's been keeping you uh, occupied and uh, other than maybe hanging out with your kids, which I know you do. And, and um, so let me know what, uh, what do you have for the audience? Well, uh, you're right. My, um, my small kids, uh, and, and my wife are, uh, are you know, my, my every reason for getting up every day. Um, but, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, um, diving back into Harry Potter, uh, as an adult and feeling like a kid every day with, with my son and the world of magic, uh, that is, uh, is, has definitely, uh, been something I look forward to every day. <laughs> Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I, uh, a couple of years ago, read the Harry Potter books, start to finish all of them to my <laughs> two older daughters and man, uh, they liked it, but I think I liked it more. It was really <laughs> I know. I, know. I, I, I don't want to let that, that, uh, well, my, I think my son knows how much I like it, but it's, um, it's, it's, there's so much more stuff now than there even was when we, you know, a while back, um, you know, for instance, there's cookbooks now with all the Harry Potter stuff and look, Legos, man. Let me tell you, um, uh, if you haven't seen the Lego Hogwarts castle, um, and you just want to feel like, uh, like you, you, you know, you want to be a kid again right now, go ahead and Google that. And, uh, you might even find yourself doing some Legos during re your anesthesia residency. And, uh, cool. I'd, lo I'd love to see a picture of it. That sounds awesome. Well, thanks Lee. Uh, my random recommendation for the day is, uh, and I'm almost embarrassed to say it cause I may be the last person on earth to not have watched this show, but, uh, I finally have gotten around to watching Shit's Creek, which is one of the funnier shows I have ever watched. And I love that it's short. So the episodes are about 22 minutes, which, uh, it, you know, it's really easily digestible. So if I've you know, got to uh, just want to take a break from work or something. And I can, you know, got 20 minutes free. I can watch an episode. Uh, my wife had actually watched it at the gym without me, which uh, is fine, of course. And so I um, now I'm trying to catch up to her. So I'm just watching them whenever I get a sec. But it is a, it, the show is really funny. So highly recommend that to anyone who is like me behind the times. All right, Lee, thank you so much for coming back on the show. My pleasure. All right. That was great. Hopefully people found that useful. I know this was a really requested topic, so I hope you found it to be what you were hoping. If you have comments, go to the website, com. You can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you would like to join the conversation on Twitter, I'm at Jay Wolpaw, and we're at Podcast. 
And there's also an ACRAC Facebook group that you are welcome to join. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And if you would like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, or you can make a donation anytime by going to Venmo and looking for Jay Walpaw or going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. Thank you, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, our tech lead, to April Liu, our social media manager, and to Dr. Kimia Kashkuli, our prior social media manager and still a valuable member of the team. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo, and you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Lee Goodell, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Thank you.